This is a Whole Observatory podcast. Hello, my name is Cody Half Moon, and today you are listening to Star Stuff, the podcast that helps us understand a bit more about life, the universe, and everything. And we are copywriting that. We did make that up just for this podcast. <laughs> today we're going to talk about the total lunar eclipse happening on May 15th, here in a few days, with co-host Haley Osborne. Hi, guys. Lowell historian Kevin Schindler. Hello. And our favorite nerdy guest, John Compton. Hey, nerds. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about lunar eclipses. Um, I think they happen every like two and a half years or, or so. Um, but Haley, tell us, what is a lunar eclipse? Yeah, so a lunar eclipse, or also called an eclipse of the moon, uh, it happens when Earth is directly between the sun and the moon. And so uh, basically, it is blocking the sun's light from reaching the moon. And so it turns it kind of that like coppery shade of red. So some people will call it a blood moon, right? Because it's got that like reddish color to it. And um, lunar eclipses can only happen when the moon is in a full phase. And this is, because I know on the podcast we've talked before about occultations, mm -hmm. and that's kind of when an object passes in front of a distant star. But do any of us here know, like, is this considered a type of occultation or no? An occultation is whenever anything is hidden. So, mm -hmm. sure. Okay, so this is a solar occultation. Like, like the occult, right, is like, oh, you know, you're hiding, something's hidden. Yeah, so like the Earth is occulting the view of the sun from the moon it would be the moon is occulting the view of the sun from the earth though for that's this a, that's a solar eclipse yeah that's oh, a solar okay. eclipse i think a, i think a solar eclipse is an occultation but a lunar eclipse is not because we're in between if you're on the moon it's an occultation <laughs> okay so for for the the loonians or whatever they're called the aliens on the moon that we all know about <laughs> on the dark side this is an an occultation of the earth yeah. Oh, Lunarians <laughs> is a good one. Lunarians. A, the okay. movie on Netflix, Over the Moon, they call themselves Lunarians. So. Lunarians. Yeah. So um, for us, it's just going to look pretty and red. Um, I know for the partial lunar eclipse last October-ish, it was pretty gorgeous. That was just a partial. Mm -hmm. So another cool thing about this one is that its totality is a decent length, and it is during Lowell Observatory's opening hours. So we're going to have a big freaking party. Yeah. And for those of you who are listening who uh, aren't near Flagstaff and don't have time to travel here for our party, Kevin and John are hosting a big old live stream. And we're looking forward to this. You know, the timing of the eclipse really couldn't be better almost for us in Flagstaff. Because of the time, yeah, you know, it's not, right. you don't have to get up at two in the morning to see it. It's not too long after dark and, uh, you know, the moon up. It's it's really ideal for people who don't want to stay up all night. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And with Kevin and John, it's going to be absolute mayhem on YouTube all night. So I'm pretty mm. excited for it. <laughs> and if you're up here, I'm doing talks in person about the eclipse. So it'll be mayhem in person also? Oh, very much so. Yeah, I'm doing four in a row. So they're going to get... They're going to get weird, so definitely come check it out. 
<laughs> Nothing is going to be boring on May 15th. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and um, I'm assuming, John and Kevin, have you already had your meeting to discuss which dad jokes you will be incorporating into the programming? We have a whole legacy of dad jokes to include. For okay. instance. Oh, yeah. Uh-oh. Did you hear about the restaurant on the moon? No. The food is out of this world, but the place has no atmosphere. <laughs> That's my favorite. That's a good one. Can we hear your least favorite? If that was your favorite, I want to know. I want to get the the scope here of where this bar lands. Um, right now, that's the only. That's the least favorite, also, because I can't think of any others. The least favorite, and <laughs> okay, got you, got you. Nice. Well, throughout this recording, we'll let you stew on that and think of a worse bad joke, uh, dad joke. Oh yeah. So we do have some things to cover here. We've got history and we've got lore, but I'm just curious, John, you did the live stream for the partial lunar eclipse. What did you talk about in that live stream? Do you remember? Mostly the geology of the moon and then answered questions. I love answering everyone's questions on a live stream. You know, like I I don't really get to see any of the comments or questions after the podcasts. Mm, Um, So getting... Being able to field questions live was really fun. And also being corrected live instead of via comment a month later is fun. I would love to talk really quickly. When you're talking about the geology of the moon, can you tell us some of the cool names of the craters on the moon? Because aren't there like some really dope names? I mean, the two big ones are um, Tycho Crater and uh, Copernicus Crater. Those are the ones that you can easily see. They have really, really good ejector ray lines coming off of them, which are the sort of star patterns. Um, and they, they both have really um, pronounced like resurgent peaks in the center, which is where that little lump that looks, it's like a little little tiny mountain in the middle. Um, and that's from the rebound of the impact. Tycho's a fun one, named after the guy that cut his nose off in a duel in his castle. What do you mean the rebound of the impact? Well, I mean, you're, you're pushing a lot of energy into the surface and that energy kind of compacts the earth and, or the, the rock, right? And mm-hmm. then it kind of bounces back a little bit. It ripples back in some situations. Okay. So you get like this terracing effect along the outer or along the inside of the rim of the impact crater where it's sort of like slowly like caves in over time because it's weakened now. Oh. It looks like little stair steps. Um, and that like relieves pressure in certain areas. And so you get resurgence in the middle, but like, it's, Hey, look, you can see it. I don't know. It's cool. It means it was a big, it was a, a heavy hitter impact. And one of them was named after someone who got their nose cut off. Yeah. Tycho. He was a weird, <laughs> weird scientist. He was an odd dude. Yeah. Unlike all the other scientists. Yeah. Yeah. We're all super normal. So normal. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And what's the sea of tranquility? It's just a, um, a big area of the Mar. It's like, um, this uh, magnesium-rich rock, it flows very um, smoothly. Like, um, it flows really, really well. And um, when all the impacts happened, um, a lot of that magma underneath the surface was let out, and it kind of fills in all these areas of the moon um, and looks like these giant oceans, these bays um, that have little island chains from where the highlands kind of stuck up and things like mm-hmm. that. And... Uh, yeah, so the Sea of Tranquility is one of those lunar, quote-unquote, seas 
that was a sea of magma a long time ago, but now just looks like an ocean up there because it's darker. They're all named for stuff like that, you know. And that's a good point, John, because a lot of those names originally people thought, you know, without the aid of a telescope or anything else, they thought they were oceans of water. Um, and that's why there are seas and oceans and um, a lot of the names, Oceanus and Mare and so on. There, and like in astronomy in general, there's a lot of leftover names that don't make sense necessarily, but they still hang around. There are a lot of like sea like references in space, like the ship and I guess I'm thinking of Star Trek more now, so I'll shut up. But um, I have noticed that trend. Well, there's several constellations that, that they're named after instruments that are used at sea, you know, especially the Southern Hemisphere. Um, which were newer constellations, you have like sextants and things like that. Hmm. Well, and a lot of um, cultures looked at the Milky Way as some sort of like cosmic river of the dead leading to like the afterlife or whatever. So that's dope. (laughs) Yeah, it's really cool. (laughs) So I guess um, let's start in with some of the lore. Ooh, yeah. I got a bunch of stuff on here. Um, So uh, there's this one uh, South African myth that the lunar eclipse, uh, the sun and the moon are actually fighting. And so it's up to the people to come together and like encourage the celestial bodies to resolve their feud. So it's basically like Mm -hmm. a giant, I, I don't know. It's like the original fire and ice. Yeah. Yeah. Like the original fire and ice kind of thing, you know? I don't know if they consider them to be more like sibling fighting or if it's like a lover's quarrel, because I know a lot of cultures look at the sun and the moon as like these uh, these two lovers who have been like cursed to hardly ever see each other, you know, because like the moon's up during the day sometimes, but not really all the time. Forlorn romance. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was looking it up, it didn't really say what kind of fight, but uh, it did say that the people are supposed to come together and kind of resolve the feud. And so that's uh, that's one that I saw, which was pretty cool. There's so many myths like that, that the, the first recorded um, lunar eclipse was from 1136 BC by Chinese observers. And there have been people observing it before then that was passed down through word of mouth. But there's so many, the explanations were, you know, some sort of monsters or spirits that, you know, that created it. Um, and it wasn't until 520 BC that a Greek philosopher, Anaxagoras, was the one that figured out the true cause. And he was thanked by being labeled an atheist and thrown in jail. <laughs> and so it goes. I mean, that checks out. <laughs> yeah, Galileo, you know, you know, you got to be careful what you say. Yeah. Wasn't he funded by the Catholic Church or something? He was definitely excommunicated from the Catholic Church at one point. It took hundreds of years and the Catholic Church just, I don't know, the last decade or two officially acknowledged that the sun is at the center of the solar system. <laughs> yeah. And it, I mean, it, it does, it's not as bad as it sounds, probably. It, it's not like it was right. important to do it, but still, yeah. you know, yeah. Galileo was, you know, yeah. <laughs> thrown in jail and, and all this um, for his troubles for illuminating the world. Uh-huh. Illuminating. <laughs> <laughs> there is, um, there's a lot of kind of references that I have seen this year in popular culture about e- like lunar eclipses and solar eclipses. I feel like I've seen more of that recently than I have in a long time. 
Um, there was the a video game, The House of Ashes. I think, I can't remember if that was a lunar eclipse or a solar eclipse, but I feel like I'd never seen any of this before. And recently it's just kind of everywhere. So, well, there's also that, that guy, his name was Hank Morgan. Do any of you recognize his name? Uh-uh. He, he was in King Arthur's court. Uh. <laughs> That's from Mark Twain's book, the Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court, the fictional character. Oh, but who, you know, he predicted a solar eclipse, but there, there's also, you know, knowing when eclipses were going to happen, have been people have used that for some interesting purposes, like uh, Christopher Columbus, um, fifteen oh four. What did he do? Uh, one of his <laughs> one of his uh, uh, missions. He was uh, in Jamaica, and they got shipwrecked there, and they were there for a couple of years. Um, well, at one point, a feud broke up between the natives and the crew, and. Columbus knew that there was an eclipse coming up, a total lunar eclipse. And so he gathered the natives and said, if you guys don't behave, we're going to take the moon away. And lo and behold, they took the moon away. And that supposedly scared them into doing whatever he asked them to do. The moon has always been kind of associated with like, transformation and change you know because it's like it goes through the phases and everything and so um a lot of uh a lot of uh people thought the same uh thing about like you know transformation and making everything count so like even uh tibetan buddhists believed that good and bad deeds you do during a lunar eclipse are multiplied tenfold Ooh. yeah so on the 15th do some good deeds <laughs> if you buy a lottery ticket are your winnings that much more? Yeah, they they tenfold. Uh-huh, tenfold. Yeah. You win $100 million. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if not, then you just have to write a letter to Tibet and be like, hey, guys. <laughs> so uh, one cool thing, too, is the referring to the color of the moon. It's, as Haley said, is referred to as a blood moon. Uh, which has been seen as a sign of the apocalypse. There's some biblical references to this in Joel. It says the sun will turn to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So, I mean, he's describing, right, he's describing a lunar eclipse. But I'm curious, John, maybe you could talk about this a little bit, is why does the moon turn red? You know, like when you look out, at sunset or sunrise and like it's the the light coming over the horizon is kind of like reds and oranges and things mm-hmm. for a lunar eclipse especially a total lunar total lunar eclipse it's all it's all sunrise and sunset basically filtering over the earth and hitting the moon at that point like through the atmosphere yeah i mean you know if you've got the sun then the earth then the moon Right, the only light hitting the moon is sunrise and sunset light. That's like the the less scientific. Answer. Oh, but okay. I mean, it's it's very very much true. Um, it's it's Rayleigh scattering mm-hmm. as as the light passes through the atmosphere. But um, it's the same reason the sunrise and sunset is is red. It's just the only light that's going to hit the moon is sunrise or sunset light, which is reddish. So that light's actually from the light bending around the Earth. 
Uh, no, it's passing through the atmosphere on, on the way to the moon. Oh, okay. It's not necessarily bending around it. It's the light. The, the atmosphere itself is bending the light, bending off everything that isn't that reddish or orangish wavelengths. Changing the wavelength, not making it curve around anything, but just yeah, changing no. its frequency. Yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, it's scattering. <laughs> and uh, this one, this one's kind of interesting. Uh, if you are an expectant mother, you are advised to stay indoors when the moon turns dark for fear that it may curse an unborn uh, child. So I just, I have to, I'm just curious. It, none of this sounds great. Um, we've got the the sun and the moon as these forlorn lovers. And when they're finally together, they must be fighting. That's, that's the conclusion that we as a human species have come to. And then also uh, unborn children are, are cursed. I'm just curious, like what are y'all's theories on why lunar eclipses are seen as such evil things? Do you think it just stems from people not knowing what's happening and suddenly the moon's bloody and red I think it's unexpected. It's like, you know, comets were seen as portents of doom. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you know, the sky is falling sort of thing. Something's going wrong. Yeah. But it happens like in a recent, you know, it's not like every 15 years, right? It's like every two and a half years. So it's not super uncommon. Um, yeah. It's one of those things where like you can't really see it approach also. Oh, it just you can't? happens. You know, same thing with a with a solar eclipse. You don't really see it getting ready. Yeah, it just does it, and it's mm-hmm. like ah, it's hard to attribute like causation to it. Yeah, if you don't study the sky, you have no idea. Somewhere along the way, somebody noticed it happens. Oh, the the moon looks really big. It's full. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, it happens during that time. But if mm-hmm. you're not noticing that sort of thing, and plus the moon is full every month. So mm-hmm. why is it do it sometimes and not the other? And red's kind of considered a bad color, you know, like yeah. it's a warning color in nature. Mm-hmm. So Mars is the god of war, the red yeah. planet. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. And like, it's cool because, yeah, like uh, cultures that didn't study this kind of stuff, they took it as a sign of like bad omens and stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, cultures that did study astronomy they use this to their advantage so like aristotle he actually observed earth's shadow on the moon during a lunar eclipse and saw that it had a circular shape and that's what led him to believe that the earth was round or that's one of the reasons so yeah oh that's really cool yeah and then um another greek astronomer uh aristarchus i think is how you pronounce it um he used a lunar eclipse to estimate the distance from the moon to the sun and earth how would he do that how would he go about doing that um i'm not 100 percent positive i think it has to do with like how big the shadow was versus how big we thought the earth was maybe john compton do you have any insight on that one no that that feels right right and you know they the eclipses were used for another reason for for several years um people at sea trying to determine longitude once we understood eclipses and could predict them um you could use and you know predicting them is predicting what date they're going to happen in the exact time so if you're at sea and the eclipse happens you know what the exact time is which allows you then to determine longitude but there aren't enough of them to to, 
make that very useful. Yeah. Well, and uh, again, like if you don't study this kind of stuff, like um, there was this uh, decades long struggle between Athens and Sparta and Athenian soldiers, they were losing. And so they like went to retreat. But when they went to sail home, there was a lunar eclipse that took place. And that was like supposed to be a bad omen. Right. And so they uh, they decided to halt, you know, because their uh, what's he called their commander. I almost said captain. No, he was the commander. Um, he was superstitious. So he was like, let's postpone the departure. And so the uh, Syracusians, they took advantage of that and did another attack and overcame the uh, Athenians. So they weakened their stronghold in the Mediterranean. Oh, dang. Yeah. And that was kind of the beginning of the end of Athenian dominance. My favorite story that you added here was the uh, from the Incan civilizations that they thought that blood moons occurred when a mythological jaguar attacked and ate the moon, which is just so cool. Like out of all of these, I want to subscribe to that um, that one because it just sounds so fun. Uh, and so what they would do is like to drive it away and stop the slaughter of the moon the people would t- shake spears at it and make their dogs bark at the night sky, which just sounds fun. It sounds like a really good time. So, uh, and then Haley added here that today's sky watchers still give a nod to this ritual by watching lunar eclipses with noisemakers in hands to scare off whatever is swallowing the moon. So the Incans had fun. Oh yeah. They had a good time. Well, that's like, John, you probably know this, the the solar eclipse with the Norse people. Yeah, I was about to comment. It's yeah. um the story of Ragnarok at least. Like one of the one of the precursors is that the um these wolves will consume the sun and consume the moon and that's supposed to like be okay, Ragnarok's beginning, right? Because it's what leads to like the cold winters and things like that and people going nuts. But <laughs> so it's it's kind of where it'd be like the consumption of the moon was is obviously a lunar eclipse and the consumption of the sun is obviously a solar eclipse. And so like I think it it's part of them not really knowing why these things happened mm. to to say like, hey, when they happen at the same time, uh oh. <laughs> but it's like, well, you know, we know that can't happen um, because one's a full moon and one's a new moon mm-hmm. um, by default. Oh. But it's kind of like, oh, okay, cool, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so when whenever there was one or the other, it was a wolf kind of chasing and consuming the thing. But then you know you sort of, oh, it's it saved, it's fine, unless it's the day where both happen. Yeah, you know. (laughs) Well, I know Lowell Observatory has a particularly interesting history with the moon, and we haven't really talked about it on Star Stuff yet. Um, So, Kevin, I was wondering if you could tell us what Lowell's connection with the moon is, because it's pretty fun. Sure. And we've had some researchers through the years who study the moon in different ways, um, measuring the amount of light and such. But the the big thing was in the 1960s um, with moon mapping. When, you know, the country decided we're going to go to the moon. One thing, you know, if you go to a foreign country, you take a map to figure out where you're going. If you're going to go to a foreign world, you want a map so you don't run into a crater or hit the side of a mountain or whatever. And so we needed some good maps that the astronauts could take where they could figure out where to land and such. 
where there weren't any. And, you know, through big telescopes, you could, you could get some good pictures, but it wasn't good enough. And so Gerard Kuiper, a great American astronomer, the Kuiper Airborne Observatory and the Kuiper Belt and other things are named after him. He was a, a planetary scientist. He had this idea, okay, if we need to make maps, why don't we take the best pictures we can get and then actually sit at a telescope, look through the eyepiece and wait for those moments of really good seeing when the air and everything is still and you get you know, like a moment of clarity when you, you really see the detail. And then we sketch in the details on our rough pictures that we have. And so we had this idea. And so a, a branch of the Air Force, the Aeronautical Chart and Information Center, they wanted to make maps, as did the Army Mapping um, Center and some other groups. So they, the ACIC contacted the director of the Naval Observatory here in town, um, and that seems like such a misnomer. What's the Naval Observatory doing at 7,000 feet elevation? <laughs> um, but they've been here since the 1950s. And they tried this out on one of the telescopes. And lo and behold, they really could capture the detail. And it looked promising um, to make maps. But there wasn't. they didn't have any available telescopes. So they said, why don't you go talk to Lowell Observatory to see if they have any available telescopes? And it turns out that we have this really cool 24-inch refractor. Um, that's the iconic telescope you see from around Flagstaff, the birthday cake on the side of the hill. And the, the birthday cake that's on Cody's hat that nobody can see except for us. <laughs> and so, it's cool, I and, promise. And that telescope, that telescope was not being used for much, much research anymore. It was used, being used for some double star research. Um, and one of the reasons was because even though Flagstaff has dark skies and has and the fir world's first um, lighting ordinance, outdoor lighting ordinance, was established in Flagstaff in 1958, um, you know, where Flagstaff was right below the observatory. And so the skies were getting a little bit light. So the Clark wasn't being used for much except for like points of light, like double stars. Well, to look at the moon, you don't need an exceptionally dark sky. And so they tried it out. And this and it worked really well, and it worked so well that by the nineteen mid nineteen sixties we got another telescope, and if you come up to the observatory from the visitor center parking lot, the the nearest white dome, um, that was brought on to help with the mapping. So we had two telescopes, a whole army of people that were both scientists as well as artists using airbrushes to make these exquisitely detailed maps of the lunar surface. And I mean, they're, they're really pieces of art. It's remarkable the work they did. And, you know, it's funny because now, I mean, we still make maps. USGS in town made lunar maps back then and they make planetary maps. But, you know, now we have spacecraft orbiting around the moon. And so you can get so much better detail. But if you compare what the artist did, looking through an eyepiece and doing this by hand, versus what a spacecraft orbiting is doing, they're very good. They're very accurate. Um, on top of that, they're really they're really pieces of art. So that mapping project went on for 10 years here at Lowell. And I'll say my favorite thing about that is one of the photos of all of the uh, women working on that project. And Oh, yeah. Yeah, for, for years, the main illustrator was Patricia Bridges, mm -hmm. who was a scientific artist, and she was fabulous. And then she, she um, left to raise her kids. 
And then she went back to work after that, worked at the USGS, did more mapping of other planetary bodies. But, yeah. you know, it's, it, was a, it was a pretty heady time um, in science because there was, there was a lot of money coming in to do research. You know, the space race was going on. And it, and it tied in, in fact, with the space race because we were doing this mapping. Um, meanwhile, Gene Shoemaker, who started the astrogeology branch here in Flagstaff to help prepare to go to the moon, he um, spearheaded this effort to train the astronauts in geology because, you know, they're all test pilots. What do they know about going to the moon and collecting rocks? Yeah. I mean, if, if all they do is plant the flag and thumb their nose at the Russians and come back, what a waste of time. We should train them in science. And so that's what that's what Gene Shoemaker and other scientists did. And in fact, every astronaut who walked on the moon did geology training here in northern Arizona at the Grand Canyon, the Meteor Crater, Sunset Crater. And and several of them also came up to Lowell to to see the mapping and how how you depict lunar features on maps and how to read maps. So it's a it's a pretty neat legacy that took place here. And John, how similar is that to the, like the geologic maps that you're that you studied? Is that like the same thing, or because they they've never been to the moon? So I'm curious, like, what's a geologic map look like? I think the the lunar geologic maps were more about specific landmarks like craters and getting the depths right. So that's why they were waiting for the perfect viewing, and also when the Terminator would cross, because that's when you get the most contrast. The Terminator? Yeah, so the, the maps that were done at Lowell were topographic. And so, you know, showing, like John's saying, elevations and such. And then the USGS added geologic context to it, um, you know, looking at rock types and that sort of thing. What do you mean when you say the Terminator would go across it? <laughs> Yeah, he, he just walked across and said, I'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's the daytime nighttime line on the moon. So as the sun sh uh, casts shadows into the craters, right, because you're starting to get that nighttime. Uh, that's how you like get the phases on the moon, right? Um, so like at a half moon, the Terminator is going pretty much directly uh, down the half of the moon. Um, that's why we looked at the Terminator because the sun was casting shadows into the craters and we could get a more accurate depiction of how deep the craters were. And it has to do with the angle of, you know, the sun at full moon, the sun is, is shining directly on the moon. And so everything's kind of washed out, but like at first quarter or third quarter, when they're coming at a, an angle, you know, the sun's at an angle, so you get more shadows. And so that's, and it's, it's neat because when, when they were making the maps at Lowell, they created the maps based on a certain sun angle. And it was the sun angle that the astronauts would experience when they were flying to the moon. So they wanted, they wanted the maps to look just like it would when they went there, when the sun is at a specific angle. Cool. Because they, you know, the, the detail can look a lot different. If you look at the, you know, look at the moon when it's full versus first quarter, you know, the difference in detail is staggering. And you mentioned the Naval Observatory, and that was here, I think we mentioned it in an earlier podcast, but just as a reminder, they were studying to get the exact time correct so that they would have the times. Yeah, the, the Naval Observatory goes back to, yeah, establishing accurate time. And, and in fact, you know, we think today we have GPS and everything, but that's still based on star positions. And they and and they do other research, but it all kind of ties 
ties together with that. But it is neat to go in Flagstaff to the Naval Observatory and you drive up there and there's this huge ship's anchor right in front of the observatory facility. And again, we're in Flagstaff, it, as landlocked as you can be, but there's there's the Navy right there. And the um, and we had Neil Armstrong here, right? Right, Neil Armstrong, he was part of the second group of astronauts. So there's the Mercury 7, the first American astronauts. They're the first ones to go in space. And then the next nine, the Gemini 9, included Neil Armstrong and Jim Lovell, um, Frank Borman, who graduated from Tucson High School, and and others. And it was their group. They were the first group of astronauts to come to Arizona for training in January 1963. And then, and then NASA realized this is really useful. So as classes of astronauts came, they would, early in their training, they would come to Flagstaff to learn basic geology. And they even went to the Grand Canyon not that they expected to find layers of sedimentary rock on the moon, but to understand how rocks are formed and be able to, to identify different types of rock and such. But what I, what I think is neat is that, you know, that was 50 plus years ago, but this training is still going on today. Well, what's her first name? Watkins, who just went up in space on the ISS. She's been up, she's been here the last several years training. She was part of the, Apollo, uh, part of the 2017 class of astronauts, and Lauren Edgar over at the USGS has been involved with taking um, Ms. Watkins and other astronauts out to some of the same places where Apollo astronauts went to, to again, learn and hone their geology skills. And so that's still happening today right here in Northern Arizona. Looks like it's Jessica Watkins. Jessica, Dr. Jessica yes. Watkins, yeah. I, I kept thinking Shelly, but Shelly is a local... TV personality and Flagstaff <laughs> that goes back years. <laughs> um, I actually have a really funny story about uh, Lowell's lunar legacy. So uh, the 50th anniversary of the lunar landing happened a couple of years ago, and we had this like huge event up here at Lowell, right? Because we were very involved in all of this. And I was working a double that day. So I was doing the tours in the morning, and then I was working like the night shift. And during one of my tours, I was so excited because um, our marketing team put together this beautiful video of uh, like the uh, kind of like training of the astronauts. And it would be like to the second uh, when Neil Armstrong first set foot on the moon. And so I was explaining this to the people. I was getting super excited, super hyped. And I said that. And then they all started laughing at me. And I was like, why are they laughing? And it turns out because we were in the Clark telescope, I had just been talking about how Percival Lowell studied Mars. And so I accidentally said Neil Armstrong first setting foot on Mars instead of the moon. Another first. <laughs> and everyone <laughs> lost it. And it was so funny because a bunch of them came back later that night and they were like, hey, it's the Mars girl. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, it's neat about Neil Armstrong. Well, there are so many neat things about Neil Armstrong, who, by the way, is from Ohio, um, which is worthy of pointing out. But as, a, as am I, which is, of course, why I pointed out. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Is it, oh, yes. Ohio, the famous state. He was part of that. Um, that first group of astronauts that came to Flagstaff and came to Lowell Observatory. We've got a picture of him up at the observatory. But 49 years later, when we were celebrating um, the the first light, kind of when 
the telescope was first being used of the Lowell Discovery Telescope. Um, he came back 49 years after training here um, and gave a keynote speech um, celebrating the Lowell Discovery Telescope. Um, and that turned out to be his last public appearance. Um, so, so there's kind of a neat history of the first man in, in the Northland. John, can you tell us how the moon was formed? Uh, yeah, I feel like um, this is a tale as old as time. But <laughs> I love it. I don't really know the answer. So um, back shortly after the Hadean time period was begun, a big old planet thing broadsided the Earth. Um, say it was about the, well, they estimated it was about the size of uh, Mars, and they've given it the name Theia. Uh, and yeah, it just smacked the earth when the earth was mostly lava still. And some of that lava kind of um, sideswiped and shot off into space and formed rings around the earth for a while. Um, and as with anything out there in space, eventually some parts are moving faster than other parts around that sort of like circuit around the earth. And so um, as those pieces caught up, they have more gravity now. And so it just accreted more and more mass until um, it had enough to start smushing itself together from a rubble pile. Uh, and when that happens, you get a lot of a lot of heat and a lot of friction, and um, it all globs together. And uh, yeah, and then you have the, the moon uh, born from the Earth, the Earth being sideswiped by, <laughs> by a rogue planet uh, <laughs> flying out there. How does a planet become rogue like that? You know, lots of things. Like a lot of times, um, perturbations from larger planets um, or as things, their orbits don't necessarily like stabilize. Like, so for instance, Mars's moon, one of the moons is about to crash into it. What? Well, it's like a tiny little captured like rock. The third moon of Mars is like this little, little space nugget. <laughs> um, but, you know, like even Phobos and Deimos, I believe one of them will eventually crash into Mars and one of them will eventually fly away. Is the moon going to crash into us? No, the, the moon is leaving us. Oh. oh, right. It's Wesley's fault. That's right. Yeah. Well, the, the moon is leaving, but at a slower and slower rate over time. So eventually the moon is big enough and there's not enough stuff near the earth to, to kind of mess with it, that it will reach a sort of stable spot, but it'll be pretty far away. Um, so like that whole thing about like you, the moon grows at the same rate or the moon leaves us at the same rate that your fingernails grow. That's right about now, but that does slow down over time until eventually it just kind of hits this stable lock. You know, so something interesting about that is that um, because of the moon moving away, eventually it, it changes um, how we're going to have eclipses and eventually we won't have solar eclipses because it's a really quirky thing that the sun, even though the sun is a lot larger than the moon, because of its distance, they appear the same size in the sky. Well, as the moon slowly moves further and further away, it'll get to a point where it can't cover up the sun. We won't have total solar eclipses anymore. So we should celebrate them as we as we have them. Do we know about how many we have left? Like, is this... Oh, it's down the road, yeah. Oh, it is? Yeah, it's a while. Yeah. Coming up, though, is a total solar eclipse Yeah, in 2024. Kevin, uh, what do you know about that thing? That is exciting because we had the, we had the so-called Great American Eclipse in 2017, 
which spread across the United States. And this one, this, this is going to be spreading across the United States in a different direction. It'll come up from Mexico through Texas, um, kind of head up through the Midwest, go through Ohio. Um, <laughs> got to mention that. It goes through my hometown, actually. Oh, wow. um, although it's it's April 8th, and so it could be snowing at the time over there. That's disgusting. What's great about this is that this eclipse totality is going to be a lot longer than the 2017 one. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot longer. We're still talking about, you know, a few minutes, mm-hmm. but still totality, you know, those minimum minutes are precious because it, seeing total, seeing a partial solar eclipse is really cool. And if you get like a cheese grater and hold it up, the you know the light through will form all these little mini eclipses on the ground. Hmm. Um, it's really cool. But seeing totality is a life-altering experience mm-hmm. because it's a it's not just what you see; it's what you feel. You know the temperature and the stillness and the noise. It's it's and and luckily for people wanting to experience that, it turns out that. Well, this place called Low Observatory, yeah. partnering with the city of Waco, Baylor University, and Discovery on a big event. Um, that's that's April eighth, two thousand twenty-four, and so we're we're planning that event right now. Road trip to Waco. Yes, the setting is really neat. It's it's like the Baylor's football stadium, and so the setting there's there's um, the Brazos River is right there and. All these pavilions, I think, where where you have pregame tailgating. Well, you know, a small town in Texas, there the place that they dedicate to football will be a holy thing to behold. Oh yeah. <laughs> I was just gonna say, I don't know if Cody told you to, but when I was writing this script, I initially accidentally wrote it for a solar eclipse, not a lunar eclipse, for this episode. <laughs> and then she was like, "Yeah, the lunar eclipse uh, script," and I was like, "Oh." No, I messed Wait. up. I messed up because I was here for the 2017 eclipse and we had a talk that we did for it. And so I was like mm-hmm. taking info out of there and I was like, oh, this is like such a thorough script. Mm-hmm. Everything. John's smiling because he also did that talk because at the time he was an educator with me because um, we got hired together that year. Oh, and I didn't know that. Yeah, we both got hired in the hiring group that was like literally there because we needed more people to work the eclipse event. And so they That's hired adorable. like 10 of us or something. And you're still talking about eclipses together. Yeah, we are. Mm-hmm. Look at us years later, full circle. You know, you know, John, I would just want to go back. John was mentioning about the formation of the moon. And that's something very critical that came out of the Apollo missions. Um, you know, we think of, we learn a lot of science and there's so many, you know, it's kind of neat. NASA for years did a spinoffs publication of all the technology that's been developed based on um, going to space and developing technology, you know, MRIs and CAT scans and all this stuff. But um, by collecting the rocks, that's how they were able to compare the composition of those rocks and see that it matched, you know, the upper parts of, of earth. And that allowed them to, to come up with that theory before then there were, there have been several theories on how the moon had been formed um, and but this one, this one really nailed it down. There's still some details that are uncertain, but you know that's an advantage of sending people somewhere when you can go and collect things and and you train them in science and teach them what to look for. Um, that makes a big difference. 
And in an episode coming up, we will be talking to someone who's working on a NASA project um, where they are unveiling the Apollo, the samples that Apollo got from the moon and finally doing something with them 50, was it 50 years later? Yeah, I think it was like 50. Well, it's neat. Yeah, they, they, you know, they brought all the samples back of a few hundred pounds over from six missions. And they, and they looked at a lot of them, but some of them they kept sealed, hermetically sealed um, until one of the ideas is, you know, in in 50 years, we'll have better technology to analyze these. Yeah. And here we are. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. All culminating to a podcast episode on Star Stuff. (laughs) Well, I think that's the reason they collected them in the first place. They had the podcast to be out. And this was the year. (laughs) So John Compton, tell us about where uh, we can see other like moon things and moon sightings in Flagstaff. I guess if you're um, if you're doing some lunar tourism up here in Flag, um, you can visit some of the great places that the Apollo astronauts trained at. But you know, all of our local rock types are, are basically lunar rock types, which is why you know they came here to train. Besides being at the high elevation, we've got very similar similar rocks. So you know, it's that basalt is the mar, and it's everywhere in Flagstaff. Um, but specifically, uh, check out SP Crater. Um, it has a huge magmatic lava flow. Uh, does SP stand for something? <laughs> it yeah. it does. It stands for <laughs> pot. Oh, okay. Yeah. Does it really? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Because it looks like a big, because it, it was a, a cinder sort of like pile type uh-huh. eruption, which means it was like low uh, stability, which means the lava flow kind of sh- shot out the side, <laughs> squirted a bunch of brownish rock out the side <laughs> oh, no. um and it, it's been given that name i mean that's the official name sp is the sp is the nickname Got one, it. Of the, one of the mild-mannered babbits mm-hmm. of decades ago nicknamed uh, that and it's stuck that checks out oh my god that tracks that is so funny but they practiced um uh doing seismic work out there um like how will uh, seismic signals look like when they're on the moon because they're testing it on that same basalt. So like how can they identify geologic features using like classic seismic methods of like a hammer and an anvil on the ground kind of thing. So it was like a, a geology crash course for these astronauts that weren't geologists. Oh yeah, totally. Gotcha. Um, and so out in the Cinder Hills OHV, which you can still visit and is very fun, um, it's an area slightly northeast of town where um, people ride dirt bikes and those like um, the side-by-sides and things like that um, through, and there's these big holes in the ground, big craters, and they were created for the Apollo astronauts by basically um, blowing holes in the ground with dynamite. Um, And that was to help them learn how to uh, sort of like do this timeline of which craters um, were impacted first. So they, the test was to blow them all up at different times and then say, like, here's the techniques. Um, now, go tell me which order we blew these holes in the ground um, so that when they got up there, they could use um, things like uh, which ejecta is layered over which. Um, how deep? What's the deformation like? Do we see debris from another area inside this crater? Um, things like that to um, create this timeline of events. And it was actually, I think, 
I think it's a a one to one match of an area on the moon as well. Yeah, they they got it as well. The first they made it a few fields. They made um, field one, which is um, near the landfill on one side of the landfill, and you can see the craters on your iPhone on your on the Google Maps. Um, But don't go to that one. Yeah, that one. That one is that one is actually part of a new um, registered landmark that was just created a couple of years ago by uh, Ben Carver and Ian Huff, um, local historians and rangers. And it, and it preserves some areas around Sunset Crater where the astronauts um, practice driving the rovers, practice doing, I mean, they would, they would get in full gear or not full gear, but a lot of the gear and practice missions. I'm talking to mission control in Houston. So they made that, they made the first crater field in 1967 and it had a hundred plus craters and it's very well preserved. And then that was so p- successful. They decided to make another one. They did some test holes at, Bab- at Babbitt ranches and those are still there, but they decided to build a second field. I don't know as the crow flies a mile away or so where the OHV area is now. And that one has, that had more craters, but they've been, obliterated, like John said, because, you know, 50 years ago, there were astronauts driving, driving practice rovers across the surface. And now we have dune buggies doing kind of the same thing. And then in the wintertime, those craters filled in with snow. And so they built another crater field down um, just south of Cottonwood. And Jim Lovell and um, Apollo 13 and 16 or maybe it's just Apollo 16, but they, but several of them, Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes, um, Charlie Duke, they, they did some training down there also. And those craters are a little bit different because they're not in a cinder field like the ones that John's talking about. That's a remains of Sunset Crater, but it's in an alluvial area where mud has washed in the craters. <laughs> and so you can, you can see some circular areas defined by trees that whose seeds fell into the craters and grew or if you look closely you can see these circular areas where the matrix is really fine and then the ground around it has larger rocks and you can see where mud filled in those craters but really really neat legacy you know there was the natural the natural rocks all the astronauts except for one hiked into the grand canyon to learn to as part of their early geology training the only one that didn't was Jack Schmidt, who was a geologist. <laughs> and while the astronauts were learning to do geology, the geologist was learning how to fly jets. Nice. <laughs> they had to learn their stratigraphy down there so they could do yeah. lunar stratigraphy. Uh, stratigraphy? Yeah, just like the layers. We'll learn about the layers. The stratigraph? Yeah. Cool. You know, like the lunar regolith is very sharp. And so there's bags and bags and bags and bags of this stuff at the USGS here in here in mm-hmm. town of the like fake regolith. Um, I think some was for other purposes, but um, you know they were making this stuff a long time ago for the astronauts to train with because like it does you sort of have to move different in it and it's it wears into um, your gear and you have to treat your equipment differently when you're working with it and things like that. Um, and I've got like a bag of it in my office right now. Um, oh. <laughs> Wait, where? No, don't, <laughs> don't, don't, don't grab it. <laughs> it's, uh, but it's in that little box down to the lower left. Um, oh. That one's also uh, there's also some some 
uh, artificial meteorite um, or artificial asteroid stuff in there too. So, so is that like is that like snow crab? Is that like uh, <laughs> like it's not real crab? It's it's a different type of fish. Like yeah. how is is this just rock that's made to look like meteorite, or maybe from the same rock that it would be? It's the same rock, same minerals, um, mm. and they basically crush them up. So like for the the lunar one, it's just it's basalt. Right. It's just you just go out here and grab it. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, there's some some other some slight slightly different properties of it. I believe you you don't get like a lot of like crystal structures in them, um, things like that. But they grind it up and and it's just really sharp when they when they crush it. Mm. So it would be like moon rock. It's, exactly. So it, it's almost nay identical to moon <laughs> rock um, for all for all intents and purposes. Um, you're going to have like different like if you really went nuts with it and like tried to do some like magnetic survey of it it would probably look different but you know because you have like a weaker magnetic signal from the earth that kind of thing um and john you know the usgs has so much cool stuff because that was they were the ones organizing so much of the the geology uh, work that was going on the moon there were also there was also nasa but usgs here in town was really orchestrating a lot of it and it's neat some of the stuff they have over there. Like they have, they've they've created fake moon rocks, but they're they're based on the real ones, the same size and shape and everything. Um, so they can look at the sizes and such. They got that rover. That's yeah, cool. the neat the neat thing is, I don't I don't know right now if they're open because of COVID, if, where people can walk in. But during non-COVID times, during regular business hours during the week, you could go into their lobby and Grover the geologic rover that, is inside there. And that was a, that was a vehicle, a practice vehicle for driving around mm-hmm. um, and practicing, you know, doing geology traverses. And can you go to the USGS like as a visitor and just hang well, out? Well, that's why I'm, I'm not sure what it is right now because they, because it, because of COVID, you know, the doors may or may not be open. It's not, it's not like a visitor facility per se, like at Lowell, yeah. but in their main building, the Shoemaker building, um, oh. the lobby has has Grover in it. And then there's some neat, um, not just moon displays, but also other geology displays, planetary geology displays down the hallways. And in general, in the past, it was kind of open and sometimes classes would go in there. But, but I'm not sure again right now. We'd have to check with them to see what the access is. Everything changed with COVID with access. And they're still, it's neat because they're still a lot of buildings around town, you know, USGS came here in 1962 and, you know, like everything with Apollo, it was, we're going to the moon by the end of the decade. There was a lot of stuff to do. And so they had to hire a lot of people and they were building a new facility. They started out at the museum, borrowed some buildings at the museum in Northern Arizona until their facility was ready. But even after it was, they just, had a, they had hired so many people. And so there are machine shops around town that were used um, for, for geology labs. There's down on Mike's Pike, there's the t-shirt shop. It's just across from Mother Road Brewery, one of our great partners. That was the geology, the petrology lab where they hmm. analyzed rocks. Um, the U-Haul place over on Huntington, Huntington, that was a place where they built, I think that's where they built Explorer, one of the practice vehicles. No kidding. There's a, over on East Street, there's a garage and there we have great old pictures of where Grover and all these other practice vehicles are parked in front of it. 
that was this neat. That was a storage facility, and there are pictures. It's right in the middle of a neighborhood. But um, there, years ago, I was talking to Pat Madden, who was on the police force, the chief of police at one point, and he remembered back fifty years ago. He was a young officer, and they got called over to this facility because some kids had broken in, and they were they were hoping to go joyriding on the practice rover. Um, but the police got there before they could do it. <laughs> nice. I love the name Grover. That's pretty uh-huh. perfect. Yeah, nerds. Well, I think we are out of time, but specifically, um, before I have Haley give all our awesome end of episode callouts, if you're around plan to be up here at Lowell on May 15th. We're going to have food trucks and I think like beer and performances and special telescopes. And then these nerds are going to be on a live stream, I guess, if you can't make it in person. But um, it's a total lunar eclipse party on May 15th. I think it starts at five o'clock and we're going to be open super late. We're staying open until midnight that night. So and I will be here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, as always, everybody, uh, be sure to check out our Discord channel. It's really starting to ramp up. It's really fun. There's been talk of an art channel, so that would be pretty cool. Yeah. Um, Also, we have our Twitter. Please follow our Twitter because I tweet all the time and no (laughs) one ever comments on them and it makes me sad. Don't retweet (laughs) Haley's tweets. How rude. Please retweet my tweets. (laughs) And um, of course, if you guys have questions, use the hashtag AskStarStuff. Uh, the A and the S and the other S are all capitalized. And then uh, this isn't really like star stuff specifically, but Lowell does have an Instagram where mm-hmm. we promote our star stuff's channel. We also right. promote all kinds of other events that we're doing, including the lunar eclipse event on May 15th that y'all should join us for. And we have pretty pictures. We have so many pretty pictures. They're really pretty. Yeah, but uh, uh, thanks for joining us again, Kevin and John. We always have a blast when you guys are on the podcast. This is fun. Thanks so much. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having us. All right. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye, pals. This podcast was made possible by our members and donors. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support our nonprofit in making more digital education like this available, go to lowell.edu slash donate. Thanks for listening.